Welcome to the Sourcing Hero podcast produced by Una, a group purchasing organization that empowers sourcing heroes and Art of Procurement, the world's largest procurement podcast network. I'm your host, Kelly Barner. The goal of the Sourcing Hero podcast is to capture the epic stories of people who are rising up and beating the odds to create exceptional value within procurement directly from those heroes themselves. Today, my guest here on the Sourcing Hero podcast is Chris Lance. Chris is a senior director at UNA, a group purchasing organization which also provides the home to the Sourcing Hero podcast. Chris joins me once a month to tackle a current news story or topic of interest from his own point of view, and we always learn something during those conversations. So, hi, Chris. Thank you so much for being back with me. Hey, Kelly. How are you? I am doing great, and I'm I'm looking forward to this conversation. You and I were chatting before I hit record. This is going to be a great learning opportunity for me, as much mm-hmm. as I'm sure it will be for the listening audience. This is something super critical and big that was not on my radar screen. So we're going to start with a little bit more sort of background than maybe we typically would. Mm-hmm. Um, today, we're going to talk through FedNow. Don't worry if you hadn't heard about it. We're going to get you all caught up, as well as central bank digital currencies. We get to add a new acronym to our, our language, CBDC. Mm-hmm. Um, but Chris, start us off by just giving us a little bit of a, a primer here. What is FedNow? Yeah. So, so FedNow itself is not a CBDC or a central bank digital currency, but from my view, it is the prelude to central bank digital currencies. So FedNow itself is a service that was developed by the Federal Reserve for banks specifically in the US. And it's already been piloted, you know, internally between banks and then also in a handful of states. And so what the service or I guess platform, if you will, what it will do is it's going to enable individuals and businesses to send and receive instant payments. And so then in the future, banks will actually be able to build like new digital products or offerings on top of this FedNow platform or system. So Nothing really new per se, but new in the sense that uh, big government now has a hand in, in digital finances. Which, you know, what could go wrong? Sounds great, but but for <laughs> you know for those for those asking, well, yeah. you know, when did this start? We actually touched on this. You know, this was one of those middle of the night, or I should say, under the radar executive orders that was passed. I think in March or so of last year, and so it's been in the works for quite some time, but I think it actually goes live. I'm doing air quotes, but I think it's in like May or June of this year. So that's 30,000 foot view of like, what is Fed now? And I should actually point out, and if anybody really wants to know, I have the email chain to prove it. We picked this topic, banking, right? Before yep. Silicon Valley Bank ran into trouble. So mm-hmm. this is not a pile on topic. This is something you've been monitoring. We had decided to talk about. We mm-hmm. had our uh, very self-amused email exchange backwards <laughs> and forwards. Like, we did it again. Right. We picked the topic right before everything hit the fan. Um, so, you know, you you talked a little bit about, you know, government taking a role and, you know, now we, we joke about the existing banking infrastructure, but it's important to understand how all of these pieces are going to work together. Mm-hmm. So in the rollout of FedNow with these instant payments, 
is the federal government working with on the same side or are they working or functioning sort of in competition with large banks that might be able to offer a similar service? Ooh. So that's that's a loaded question. It's a great question. Um, you know, as far as are they working with them? Is it going to replace or change anything? So my immediate answer or thought is no, right? Is it, you know, come May or June, is anything going to be different? I would say no. It's not necessarily replacing anything immediately. But I believe that in time, that's going to evolve, you know, if you will. And it's actually going to replace a lot of current processes and structures for something as simple, for example, as cash. We're, we're clearly moving to a, clash, a cashless society. Mm-hmm. And so, again, you know, FedNow itself doesn't enhance or unleash, you know, capabilities that we don't already have in place today. But what it does do is ratchet up transparency and control. So, for example, <laughs> let me dive down this rabbit, rabbit hole for a second. But, for example, to participate, everyone would need a unique identifier, which that in itself is interesting because if our memory serves me well, we couldn't have voter IDs because that was too cumbersome. Right. But we can require it for financial aspects. That's, that's rather telling, but, but I digress. I think the end goal is to move to cashless everything. So with that, banks, casinos, other sectors, they're obviously not going to be in favor of this. But the thing to remember, though, what ch- change like this, it's not going to come when things are working correctly. And so I believe that's a large part of what are seeing in our economy now. I don't think it's that people are that, I don't, I don't want to say inept, right? I don't think that, I believe that everything we're seeing is by design. And I think that it's on purpose because you create the problem and then you offer the solution. So right now, I don't think a lot of big banks, casinos, specific sectors are very, very interested at all in a CBDC. Uh, but I think that as things continue to progress in the way that we're seeing, I think people will actually be interested in it and whatever that means. So, Well, and it's so interesting because one of the the things that you offered up in your answer to the previous question was you talked about transparency. And I'm actually, in my mind, I'm visualizing, Chris, I don't know what these are called, but I'm sure everybody can picture them. They're sort of the traditional theatrical, there's the happy face and the sad face. I think if you have an Apple watch, it puts your phone in theater mode, that little Mm -hmm. picture. So you talked about transparency, and I think, yeah, transparency, that's good, especially for procurement. We're always talking about wanting to increase transparency. And then the other shoe drops, and like, well, yes, transparency does lead to understanding, but it also creates the circumstances in which large entities can seize control. Exactly. And so when we think about you know, there's a, a positive and a negative to everything. And it comes down to each of us making that decision, sort of what are we willing to trade in terms of what the perceived value in return is. Mm-hmm. You know, moving to a straight digital currency, as much as we might say as individual consumers, well, yeah, I mean, I, I carry a little bit of cash for this and that, but mostly I'm I'm making digital payments. Mm-hmm. But then you start to think, okay, but then the people running the system control who has liquidity, who has access exactly. to capital. Um, and, and you know, we want these systems to exist for everyone to be able to participate in them. Um, and, you know, yet different points of view always have a way of creeping in. And so it it is sort of creating a very complex situation around the movement of capital through our economy, which is like, you know, blood flowing through our veins. 
Absolutely. I think we're looking at kind of a shift from typically just being able to, con- I'll use the word control, the supply side to now actually being able to control the supply and the demand. Yeah. Because with those insights, again, we're, we're going back to, into its you know behavior modification, specific purchases, you know, re- maybe I'm reaching here, but how does this tie into eight, the 80,000 IRS workers that were, I mean, if you can see everything, like it begs the question of, well, what do you do with that information? So. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, for those of us that work outside of the financial system professionally, it's very Mm -hmm. easy to think like, oh, the Fed, they do interest rates, right? And oh, okay, then there's really big banks. And, you know, even in the coverage of Silicon Valley Bank, we know that the FDIC has played a role in guaranteeing individual deposits below a a certain threshold. But then it's really other banks. Um, I know JP Morgan Chase has played a huge role in it in stepping up to sort of keep the the system as a whole going. Mm -hmm. So if we start to break that down into what is the federal government doing versus what is the private sector doing and and how do those differ? It's interesting because with both FedNow and CBDC, as you've said, they're they're different, but there's you know there's a relation between the two of them. Mm-hmm. In the case of both, there's a lot of discussion around what's being called the retail option. And now I'm doing air quotes, the retail option, which means that, You know, the Fed, for instance, is not just financing banks. They're not just financing the federal government. Mm -hmm. There's actually an ability for individual citizens like you and I or small business owners or people in commercial real estate to bank directly with the federal government as opposed to that one step removed if we think about the financial supply chain and dealing with, with private institutions instead. And in part of the coverage of this, I actually have a quote from Janet Yellen that I want to read into the conversation and that I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Mm -hmm. So here's what she said. Innovation without adequate regulation can result in significant disruption. Digital assets and other emerging technology could offer significant opportunities. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's a little bit going back to like, there's good news and there's bad news. Okay, innovation, there's your good news. Ooh, but regulation, right? And the policy mm-hmm. changes that come with that. Um, what What's your initial response to that type of a statement from Janet Yellen? Well, so really quick, I, I'll get that in one sec. So some of the people I talked to, because you were hitting on something really key kind of about like the individual aspect. And so some of the people that I talked to about this, have they've said, well, well, I'm in crypto, so I'm all for, you know, CBDC. And I, you know, if, if that's the stance, well, then you probably don't understand what you've invested it in because those, <laughs> those tools are, they're not going to integrate, right? So real quick, cryptocurrencies and CBDCs, they, while they do have similarities, there are some pretty major differences between them. So cryptocurrencies are decentralized digital assets that are not controlled by like a central entity or authority, like a government, right? CBDCs, on the other hand, those are actually digital currencies that are backed by a central bank or by a cover, uh, or government. So with that, like we were touching on, governments can impose rules and regulations, such as limits on transaction size, transaction mm-hmm. type. And so you know, before anyone kind of rolls their eyes, I'm really not reaching here, right? Because I was reading somewhere, I think it was a director of 
someone at the Bank of England actually said that a digital currency could be programmable, which would allow the government to determine what citizens can and cannot spend their money on. So for me, just like if we just think for a second, what's the problem the Federal Reserve has right now? They can't control inflation or deflation and how people are spending their money. So imagine if your own money had to be had to be used by a specific time, or imagine you didn't have the capability to actually have savings, or let's take it a step further. Imagine you just could or couldn't make purchases of specific items. You know, Shout out to my 2A friends here, but that's a very slippery slope. So you're moving forward and back to your point on Janet Yellen making that that statement. It's, I guess I would say if I had the, if I was given the chance to speak to Janet, I, well, I'd probably ask a lot, but I would ask, you know, well, disruption for who? Mm-hmm. And, and why is that being framed as a bad thing that there's not control over something that is innovative? So, yeah, how do I, how do I feel about it? I'm I'm not pumped, you know, that the government is really wanting to get more involved with technology. I would liken it to, yeah. to, to the same way I feel about them getting involved in, with finances or private businesses that are already running autonomously. I'm I'm really not a fan at all. Um, my personal opinion, I, I think it's malicious by design, uh, and it's kind of a way to hinder, you know, capitalism, freedom, growth, and, and per, you know, a lot of different things. So what I am a huge fan of. And it kind of flies in the face of the digital aspect is I've actually been reading there's you know several representatives in states like Missouri, Tennessee, Louisiana. Those are the ones off the top of my head. I think there's 25, 26, but they're actually looking to block the acceptance or the rollout of CBDCs in their state. And they're actually looking to go the other direction, which would be working to have gold and silver accepted as a legal tender, which by the way, is in our constitution. There's a, there's a very long historical yeah. story there. Um, and if, if it's okay, I did, I did write down one thing, uh, Kelly, I did write down this quote because I just thought it was so relevant for just the theme of this topic. And um, obviously Google has competing opinions on who this quote is actually from, so I couldn't tell you. But it said, if the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around these banks will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on a continent their fathers conquered. And I'm just like, man, if you combine that with the executive orders that nobody's voting on, you combine this with the already immense power that these banks have and now we're talking about another layer of transparency. It's just, my goodness, such such wisdom in those words from ages ago, you know? Well, and the thing that's interesting, and Chris, my kids are a little older than yours, so this is word to the wise, right? I'm sure they will have invented something better by the time your kids get to this point. Um, but I'm sure other listeners may have kids or, or family members or friends with this. There is a wonderful thing called a green light card. May have seen commercials. It's basically like a preloaded debit card where I have the app on my phone. They all have a physical card, but they also have like an app in their phone. And when they go spend money, like bless his heart, my 13 year old son, oh, I see Tim has just spent $7.16 at 7 Eleven, right? Mm-hmm. That's the transparency. Now, right. here's the control that goes with it. Just like you were saying, 
I can set up my app so that he must save a certain percentage or he can't use any of the money at a certain type of establishment or on services, right? Like, okay, he can't use the green light card to go pay for a tattoo. Not that that's legal anyway, but right, right. that it can, it's possible to have that control. So if the mechanism already exists within the banking system, and at least now we're mercifully, and I think appropriately using it for children. I know I certainly don't want to be subject to that system, um, but it it is a little bit ominous that we're talking about the potential of some of these things to maybe be used for things other than the the common good. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, they're already out there. It's just that somebody needs to decide to implement them on a federal and adult scale. Exactly. It it really is. You know, with with great power comes great responsibility, and it's just you know, fingers and toes crossed that the power that comes with this is wielded in the best interest of our, our country on a grand scale and on an individual level, rather than utilizing it for the best interest of maybe other specific individuals or parties or things of that nature. Because yeah, you nailed it. I mean, the technology is already there. Yeah, It's, it's just going to be applied not to our children, but to us as citizens. Um, yeah. And what what does that mean? What does that look like? Um, it's just, I mean, something as simple as now taxes would have to be dramatically different, right? That's if right. it's if it's a digital currency, and so yeah, what a what a tangled web we weave. So now here's what I hope: I hope that the conversation is one that we are all adult enough to have as a community. Right, because I learned in prepping for this episode with you, and I'm sure people listening in are learning about this. And first of all, first homework assignment, go read up on it on your own, right? We all need to keep adding to our own understanding to come to the conversation. But I hope that we can ask questions. I hope we can receive different points of view, figure out our own philosophy on things, and be allowed to individually make decisions about whether or not we think it's a good idea. Um, which actually brings me to my last question for you. And you and I always do something sort of a little bit fun and, and aspirational because we've gotten to talk about sort of the traditional sourcing hero close question. Um, but I want to ask you about courage. You know, sometimes situations and times such as these require small communities, require individuals to stand up to the giant in the room and sort of at least bring an altering point of view to light. And I think that takes a lot of courage. Mm-hmm. Um, I consider myself just a regular person. Um, so in your opinion, where can regular people find the strength, find the courage, find the determination and the sense of timing to know when they should either speak up and present an altering point of view or simply to ask questions in a situation where things feel a little bit scary and foreign. Ooh, yeah. So, so I would say above all, it shouldn't ever, this is just my opinion, but it should never come from external forces or factors, right? I think it's really, first, so first of all, it's really tough to do, whether, whether that's a work, yes. a work context around leadership or around personal convictions and, and, you know, at home in difficult conversations. And I think what it comes down to is sticking, speak, sticking to your core values um, and your belief system. So regardless of what you believe, we're not here to discuss that today. But I think 
I think it needs to be tied to your spirit or your morals of what's telling you you should do and, and really allow that to guide you. I think where it gets difficult though is where people start wavering. You can't waver on those things, in my opinion. I, I, and I, you know, to your point, Kelly, I, I think that's actually what makes this country incredible. I think for the longest time, at least, the ability to disagree while being so strong in your stance, but making room for others, I, I think that's that's what we were founded on, right? Now, the decline, in my opinion, is what we're seeing is you know certain viewpoints are being stifled or making people fearful, whether that's for their jobs, their lives, their, their families, just for speaking honestly. Um, I'll tell you, it's something I'm actually working on myself. Like I'm, We've joked about it, but I'm slowly trying to find my courage to whittle away at this do not say list, you know, and, <laughs> and find my voice. And if you believe that and you're passionate about it, then then speak to it. So I think it needs to come from within, but I think it needs to come from what you hold dear, what you hold true. And I don't want to take it to the extreme, but what are you really willing to fight for? Um, and then never, just never waver on that. So, Because in a quote that comes to mind for me, mm-hmm. If you stand for nothing, you will fall for anything. Thank Mm -hmm. you, Alexander Hamilton. There you go. It's a great quote. Excellent. Well, yet another excellent conversation, Chris. We we just keep pushing ourselves, and I always learn so much. Um, If people have listened in and like hearing a different point of view, like learning about new topics, how would you suggest that people get in touch with you or connect? Well, so I'm, I am on LinkedIn. It's actually the, uh, the only social media I have. So you can find me. It's Chris with a K, K-R-I-S, Lance. Um, additionally, though, you can reach me at Chris at Una.com um, or you could visit our website. It's Una, U-N-A.com. And if you go to kind of about us, you can think my face is out there. You can press on it and it can route <laughs> you to me that way too. So Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being back, Chris. Always a pleasure, Kelly. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sourcing Hero Podcast. Join us again next time for more true stories of sourcing and business heroism performed by your colleagues and peers. Look for the Sourcing Hero wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to subscribe. Finally, don't forget, sourcing heroism is taking place all around us every day. Keep your eyes open and you're bound to see it. Until next time, I'm your host, Kelly Barner. Stay well and always remember that you can be a hero too.